Chapter Thirteen of the Radio Planet. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kenneth Sargent Gagan. The Radio Planet by Ralph Milne Farley. Chapter Thirteen. Further Progress. His change of tactics had worked, although it made him feel like a brute. But only by arousing Quivin's anger could he stir her to continue the journey, and to remain would have menaced her safety in her health. She had a good head start of him. The silver sky was turning crimson in the west. Night was coming on, so he hurried after her down the wet and slippery trail. At last it became so dark that he had to slow down and walk, and finally merely grope his way, shoving his feet ahead one after the other in order to be sure to keep to the trail and not to stumble. Time and again his foot would touch something soft, which he would picture as a some strange and weird Horovovian animal. A gnoper, for example. Quickly he would withdraw the foot, then waiting in suspense for the creature either to go away or to spring upon him. At last he would cautiously push his foot forward, touching the object again, kick it slightly and find that it was only a clump of horovovian grass or a rotted piece of lichen log. Poor Quibben, how terrified she must be at such encounters. After a while he got a bit used to these occurrences, and accordingly each succeeded one of them delayed him less than the preceding. You know, he said to himself, this will keep on until finally one of these obstacles will actually turn out to be a nooper, and it will eat me alive before I can get out of the way. Just then his groping foot touched another of these soft objects. Get out of my way, Cabot shouted, and gave it a kick. But this time it was not attached to the soil. It yielded and wriggled a bit. Then it gave a peculiar groaning sound. Miles leaped backward and waited, but nothing happened. So he tried to circle the creature again, again the groan. His scientific curiosity finally got the better of his caution. He approached once more and investigated more closely. Reaching down with his hand, the animal was covered with wet and muddy fur. It was Quibben. Tenderly he raised the crumpled form in his arms and groped down on the treacherous trail. Miles wondered how long he could bear up with his dead weight in his arms. But just as he was beginning to stagger, the road gave him a turn and flattened out. And there before him were lights the flares and bonfires of a city. They had reached the plain. Quibben, he cried joyfully, this is home. There ahead lies Vacarine. But she made no reply. Her body was cold and still. Quickly he laid her on the ground and placed one ear to her chest. Thanks to the great builder, her heart still beats. So he chaffed his hands and feet and worked her arms violently back and forth until she began to groan protestingly. Quibben, he cried, wake up, we are home. Are you here, Miles? she murmured faintly. Yes. And you won't make me walk any more? No. Then I'll wake up for you, she murmured cheerfully, and promptly fell fast asleep. Again, lifting her tenderly in his arms, he resumed the journey. On reaching the city, he circled the wall until he came to one of the gates, where he stood the girl on the ground and shook her gently into consciousness. Where am I? she asked. At the gate of Varaking, Miles answered. She ran her hands rapidly over her mud-cake fur. 
Oh, but I can't go in like this, she wailed. I'm covered with mud from head to foot. Think how I must look. No, I refuse to go in. Well, if you stay here, he urged mildly, then when morning comes, everyone will see you. The princess quivered, bedraggled with mud. Hanging around outside the city gates, better far to go in now and take a chance of being seen by only one sentinel. Oh, you beast, you beast, she sobbed, beating him futilely with her tiny paws. For reply, he seized her in his arms, swung her across one hip, and shouted, Open wide the gates of Araking for Cabot the Minorian magician, to judge the excuse-maker, and to his excellency, Theop the Grim. The gate swung open, and the sentinel stared at them with surprise and some amusement. Miles whipped out his sword, and the smile froze on the soldier's face. Thus do I teach men not to laugh at Miles Cabot, the earthman growled. Remember that you have seen nothing. And then he handed the soldier the choice blade of Grod the Silent. The soldier smiled again. I've seen nothing but a Roy, he said, whom I robbed of his sword and drove off into the darkness. Oh, it's a fine sword, and I will remember that I have seen nothing. May the great builder bless Miles Cabot, the Minorian. Cabot glanced at his burden, Quiven, the beautiful. No wonder she did not want to be seen. It always humiliates a lady not to look her best in public. But by the same token, no one could possibly recognize her. He might perfectly have well saved the sword. So he passed on through the city streets. Finally, he had to put the girl down and ask her to help him find the way, which she did, grudgingly. At the gate of Judge's compounds, Miles again swung her across his hip before he demanded entrance. No swords this time, for diplomacy would take the place of payment. Miles Cabot demanding entrance, he cried. The local guard inspected him carefully by the light of his torch. It is Cabot, all right, he replied, and you look as though you had seen some hard fighting. But who is this with you? A girl of the Roy's, answered Miles. That is what we were fighting about. Not for me, the soldier asserted, grimacing. Oh, there is no accounting for taste. They are filthy little beasts and spitfires as well, so I'm told. My advice to you, sir, is to throw her down a well. Quibben wriggled protestingly. Perhaps I will, Miles laughed. At their own gate at last, he placed her once more on her feet, whereat she shook herself free, raced into the house, slammed the door of her room. Cabot himself went right to bed, without waiting to wash or anything, and dropped instantly to sleep the moment he touched his pile of bedding. Yet so intent was he on wasting no time in getting Cupia on the air that he was up early the next morning. He found his laboratory force sadly demoralized, owing to the absence of Quiven and himself. But he quickly brought order out of chaos and set the men to work on their first real construction job, to which all the other work had been mere preliminary steps. Quiven kept to her rooms, but one of the other maids roguishly informed him, The Golden One says she hates you. Now that his firebricks were ready, Miles Cabot laid out on paper the plans for his smelting plant, all the units which were to be lined with firebrick. First he designed a furnace for roasting his ore. This furnace was to be made in two sections, one above the other, the lower one holding the charcoal fire, and the upper one holding the ore. Later he planned to use the sulfur fumes of this roaster to make sulfuric acid which in turn he would use to make the salamoniac for his batteries. But at present he had not yet figured out the process in detail. 
The smelting furnace for smelting the roasted ore into copper matter was to consist of a chimney about two feet in diameter, sloping sharply outward for about two feet, and then sloping gradually inward again for a height of about ten feet. Near the bottom were to be a number of small holes leading from an air passage. This air passage and the vent for the hot flames from the top of the smelter were to run parallel pipes made of hollow brick tile. The two chambers containing a checker work design of fire brick, the two pipes were to be interchangeable, though when the exhaust had heated one of the checker work grids to red hot, the pipes could be switched, and the incoming air would be warmed by passing through the heat grids. From Nuperhide and wood, he could easily construct bellows to pump in the air for the blast. Molten copper mat and slag would be separately ran off through two separate openings at different levels near the bottom of the blast furnace. To further refine the mat, he designed a Bessemer converter, that is to say, a barrel-shaped box of layers of clay, the inner layer being very rich in quartz sand. This barrel, when filled with molten mat, would be laid on its side, and a hot blast introduced through holes near the side would convert the mat into pure copper in about two hours. The first converter which he made was rather small, as he expected that it would not last very well without metal reinforcements, and of course he, he would have no metal for reinforcing purposes until after he had run off at least one heat. With the extraction of iron, he made crucibles of fire clay, which he set in deep holes in the ground. On the second morning, after the unpleasant homecoming, Quibbin appeared. All her rage had burned out, and she was meek and subdued. With downcast eyes, she reported to Miles, I'm ready to go to work now. With a welcoming smile, he patted her golden-furred shoulder, whereat her old anger started to flare again. But this one remaining ember merely flickered and died out, and she submitted with a shrug of resignation. So the radio man explained to her his plans for the furnaces, then leaving her in charge of the work, he set out once more to the river of the Silver Sands, this time accompanied by a heavy guard of Vikering soldiers and flying a blue flag, as agreed on with Prince Otto of the Roys. As he was departing, Quibben flung her arms around him and begged him not to go to certain destruction. But he gently disengaged himself, smiling indulgently at this show of childish affection. My dear little girl, he admonished, most of our troubles last time came from you're following me. This time I warn you that I shall be very displeased if you fail to stick closely to home and complete my two magic furnaces for me. Promise me that you will. So with tears of dread in her blue eyes, she promised, and the expedition set forth. They were gone about five days. The trip proved uneventful from any except a scientific viewpoint. They returned bearing several pounds of silvery grains placer mined from the river sands, and some large lumps of galena crystals and nearly a ton of zinc blend. They found that, under the skillful direction of little Quibben, the furnaces were nearly complete. Quibben, the golden flame, was overjoyed at Cabot's safe return, while even he had to confess considerable relief. He complimented her warmly on the progress of the furnaces, and noticed her pleasure at his expressions of approval. A few details which had perplexed her were quickly straightened out, and the work was rushed to completion. 
Next, he tested the silver grains which he had brought from the river. His method was a very simple one, invented by himself. It consisted in filling a clay cup with water and weighing it, then weighing a quantity of the metal, and then putting this metal in the water and weighing the whole. A simple mathematical calculation from these three weights gave him the specific gravity of the metal. This process was repeated a number of times to avoid error, and gave as an average a figure of 21.5, which he remembered to be the specific gravity of pure platinum. As a further test, he hammered some of the supposed platinum into a thin sheet and attempted, without success, to melt it. Then he laid a silver of one of his lead bullets on it and tried again, with the result that the lead melted and burned a hole through the metal sheet. This test convinced him that he had truly had found platinum. Cabot next turned his attention to glassmaking. For ordinary glass, he would need quartz, silver, potash, and limestone. The reason for his employing both soda and potash instead of merely one or the other was that together they would have a lower fusing point and thus be easier for him to handle with his crude equipment. For glass for his tubes, he would use the litharge in place of the limestone. The quartz and the limestone were already available. Soda would be a byproduct of the Salomonic when he got around to making it. But this would not be until he had made sulfuric acid from his copper ore, which was the most complex process as he remembered it. Potash could be got simply by dripping water through wood ashes, evaporating the water, roasting the sediment, dissolving it again in water, and then letting the impurity settle, and then evaporating the clear liquid and roasting it again. He started this process at once, but he had no idea how to make litharge. Furthermore, he could not blow his glass until he had made metal tubes, so he abandoned further steps for the present. While he was pondering over these problems, a messenger arrived, demanding his immediate presence at the quarters of Judd, the excuse-maker. Judd was in a state of great excitement when the Earthman arrived. Said Judge, Do you remember what you told me about the beasts of the South, who swim through the air, talk soundless speech, and use magic slingshots like yours, which you captured from the Roy's near Sir? Yes, Cabot replied. I hope by this time I have given sufficient demonstrations of my truthfulness so that you now believe the story. Oh, I believed it at the time, Judd hastily explained. But now I have proof of it, for we have captured one of these beasts, that is, we think it is one of them. I want you to see and identify it before we present it to Theop the Grim. Thereby displaying commendable foresight, Miles commented, Where is this forming? In the cage of the zoo, the Vicarine noble replied. Come, I will take you there. So together the two threaded the streets of Vicarine to the zoo. This was part of the city which the Earthman had never before visited. Its denizens fascinated him. There were huge water snakes with human-like hands. There were spherical beasts with rows of legs around the equator, a row of eyes around the trop of a cancer, and a circular mouth rimmed with teeth at the North Pole. But at this point, Judge urged him into another room, where he promptly forgot all the other creatures in sight which met his eyes. In a large wooden cage in the center of the room was an enraged ant-man gnawing at the bars, while a score or so of Viking warriors stood around and prodded him with spears. Stop! Judge shouted at the soldiery, where they all fell back obediently. 
this called the attention of the imprisoned beast to the newcomers so he looked up and stared at them cabot stared back then he rushed forward to the cage end of chapter thirteen recording by kenneth sergeant gagan